Hey guys, it's Tats here from Castagra, and welcome to the Specified Growth Podcast. Each week, I talk to leaders and experts about how to overcome adversity, grow massive organizations, and how to create meaningful change in the building materials and codings industry. Today's guest is Dale Crow, who is the Senior Vice President at Risk Strategies. So Dale, Dale, thank you, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, happy to be here. So when we talked before this recording, one of the things you said to me was, I'm a recovering lawyer or, <laughs> tell me about that. <laughs> that's almost become one of my lines, I guess, because that's the way I feel. I'm working my way through the steps of trying to come back from that life. But yeah, no, I am. I, I spent about a decade, uh, just shy of 10 years, working as a, an attorney in private practice, litigating lawsuits involving construction-related claims, whether that be on the design side of the project or the owner's side, or, or certainly the construction side, the contractor's side. So I went through a lot of battles and have the scars to show, I guess, and, and then got this opportunity to sort of continue a lot of what I did in my prior life, but through the, I guess, through the perspective of trying to help a client not end up <laughs> to where they need that lawyer to go through the fight. And that's how I ended up as a construction insurance broker. Yeah. So... Describe some of these challenges or battles that you've had just in the, the process. What sort of categories of issues were you running across? Oh, it is all over the board. We would have everything from maybe some type of significant structural issue where a stadium or a hotel or a casino can't open on time, right? So you've got every, okay, if you can imagine, let's use a casino. Of course, there are many types of revenue producing projects, but you know, a casino. <laughs> I'm afraid to ask what a casino generates in daily revenue, right? So a lot of the biggest claims that I handled, biggest lawsuits had to do with the delay of opening a project. And whether that was a design caused delay or a contractor type delay. And of course, a lot of that's the fight, right? Determining, determining whose delay it really is. Or perhaps it's the owner who contracted to build an A minus project and midstream wanted it to be an A plus 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 project and thought it could be done in the exact same amount of time for the exact same money. So it really runs the gamut, as they say. So those sorts of things. I had some environmental lawsuits that were very interesting where our client might have designed some type of water treatment plant. And then when certain wastewater, right, is, is treated and then eventually dispersed after it's been treated and the harmful things have been removed. Perhaps a large number of adjacent properties would band together and say that that water was somehow damaging their land or there were chemicals or something like that. We also unfortunately had the occasional bodily injury type claim where somebody goes over a balcony and hurts themselves or even worse, some collapses on project sites where a retaining wall collapses and perhaps construction workers hurt or, or killed. Those, of course, are horrific and no fun to be in. I also was a part of some transportation projects where, again, unfortunately, sometimes perhaps someone or a number of cars were in an accident and blamed the fact that they ended up in that accident on the design of the roadway or the bridge. 
or the construction of that bridge or that roadway. So and I'm sure there are others, but just I think I'm scared to say it, right? Because then something new will come out. But I, I don't know that I didn't see, I don't know if there's anything I didn't see along the way. Certainly, we're actually just past the anniversary of one of the most horrible collapses in Kansas City of a hotel skywalk that, that's very well known. And luckily, I've never been associated with anything that or even had to deal with something that, that was that horrific. But when somebody, when people are hurt, that's a big game changer. And and when you're when you're representing entity that that some party is coming after for this, let's just use you know some type of death. It's interesting. You know the to, to the term social inflation. Are you familiar with that term? No, I'm not. Tell me about. And so that. It, it's something that insurance companies and lawyers have named this concept that we're more divided as a country, as a society right now. I think. Everyone sort of agrees to that. We're more polarized, perhaps. There is a quicker emotional response to just about anything. And what, how that's affecting my world and my client's world is when we poll jurors or potential jurors, it's not so much now that these juries feel like their job is to listen to the case, right? hear what that client signed up to do. What were you supposed to do? What was your job? And did you fulfill that obligation? Which is, of course, we, especially if we're defending, a, let's say, a design firm, that's what we want. What was our client hired to do? And, and what were they not hired to do? And did they do what they were hired to do? When you do these polling now, these jurors, they look way beyond that. And their, their thought is, did your client guard the public? Were they taking care of the public to make sure nothing bad happened? And while certainly architects and engineers, who I focus a lot of my time on, have what we call a health, safety, welfare obligation, that's within their their licensure and their ethical obligations, to generally protect the public, of course, that's a big move from the evaluation of a juror, right? I think you would agree. I think that's and certainly the lawyers are trying to say, here's the contract, Here what we, here's what we agreed to do, here's our expert witness that says we complied with what we were supposed to do. But the juries are looking for more than that now. And so that's changing the way that lawyers measure exposure, right? So a lot of times a lawyer gets a case and there's an insurance company behind it, and the lawyer is giving that insurance company budget information and expectations, right? We think we'll be able to settle this for a million dollars. Those numbers are moving up. And a lot of it, the projects, look, I mean, all you have to look at some of these football stadiums that we're watching on Sundays, right? And and high school in Texas. And I mean, projects are getting more expensive and more complex. So, So litigation gets more expensive and more complex. But this social, the social factor, the social inflation factor, it's interesting to me. And it and it's it's almost like there's really not a lot we can do about it because it's so much bigger. Right. Then my then like my one little area, it's so much bigger than that because it all the other things that people are experiencing in their daily lives and seeing on the news and and all those sorts of things are really moving the needle. So what social inflation is. Yeah. So what you're saying is, I mean, on the legal side, you're on the reactionary side. We're trying to mitigate the situation. But now you've moved into a bit more of the proactive situation. And I guess what you're saying is risk is becoming more important from a company standpoint, because on the back end, it may turn into something unrecoverable. That's right. There are things that firms can do in communicating with their clients 
that jeopardize the insurance coverage they place. The insurance policies have exclusions. <laughs> you get to just do anything you want. There is a certainly certain people that view insurance as the evil empire. Unless they're a business, you know, I always say like they're in it to make money. Otherwise, how do they pay for their people to work there? But yes, that's so also a part of what we do is counsel our clients on how to keep you pay a lot of money for this insurance. We want it to be there, right? You want it to be there. Your client, even though the clients are fake, the clients of our clients infamously say all the time, right? We don't care if you have insurance or not for that, right? Well, they do. I mean, they do because it's a lot easier to recover insurance money than it is to recover money from some type of firm that a lot of professional services firms don't have a big safe in the back with millions of dollars. They are relatively cash poor and they that cash comes in and it's paid out to their people. So, so yes, you're exactly right. And I guess what I was adding to that is that there is now as risk is more important and continues to expand, we try to counsel our clients on this emotional component that is, it's hard to do. I don't know that we're experts at that yet. I don't think anybody is because it's, it's sort of an unknown. And I know this, we in our business as the broker and certainly the insurance companies that are paying out those settlements, they are very much tracking this social inflation concept. Yeah. So I guess the thing is, how do you make sure the insurance is there for you? What goes into working with the right group or the partner to make sure that it's not just the, the piece of paper that once there's something big happens, that there's going to be nothing there? How do you ensure that doesn't happen? Yeah, I would say two primary ways, okay? The first and the foremost is in the agreement that they sign with their client, the engagement, right? So what the terms of that agreement say. So recovering lawyers, right? And I'm not the only one. Got several other friendly recovering attorney colleagues on the risk strategies A&E team, which is great. And we, you know, one in San Francisco, one in Chicago, one in Kansas City. So we kind of were spread out, which is nice. And we review our client's contract. So a client will come to me and say, we're being asked to sign this agreement with XYZ owner. Is there anything in here that could cause us what we call an insurability issue? And unfortunately, a lot of the time there is. So that's a main part because believe it or not, you can agree to something by contract that does void your insurance in certain ways. But this, I always say, this is America, right? Where we are, right? You can agree to anything that's not illegal by contract. So what the firm risks is having a legally enforceable obligation to its client that the insurance company is not standing behind, right? So God forbid you get into a situation where the client calls them up on that. Insurance company is going, hey, sorry, but the court, if it gets pushed hard enough, We'll enforce it. So that is a significant uninsured exposure. The second big component outside of contracts, which comes right just in the sort of the normal course of business, contract should come first anyway. <laughs> Doesn't always, but it should come first. Then you begin performing services. There are things that you can do or say on a project that can void your insurance or establish liability. Think about when you learn to drive. I bring this up all the time. I, when I was a 16-year-old, 15, 16-year-old learning to drive, and my father, who was an old insurance veteran, said, when you rear-end somebody one of these days, 
Don't jump out of the car yelling about how sorry you are. It's an admission. It's a, you're admitting fault. Interesting aside, I was hit by a car on Friday afternoon, clearly their fault. And when she got out of the car, she didn't say sorry. And I thought that's all I could think of myself was, yep, she's had that training, I guess. But anyway, so we go into our clients' offices and now certainly a lot by this sort of Zoom type presentation and we train their people. And this is a, again, I should have said not this as a promo, but, but we don't charge for these services. So it, this is the value added of doing business with us. We'll review your contract and help you with for that just for doing, buying your insurance from us. The same with the training of your people. So I did one yesterday and I'll do one tomorrow. We will go into a firm and it's usually a lunch type thing where they bring in lunch for their people and we deliver the content and we tell war stories and we talk about the exclusions in their policy that, you know, even a senior level architect at a very large firm, that man or woman, they probably, I mean, how many times do you think a day they think about their insurance policy? Probably not many. And I don't blame them for that. Right. So, yeah, I'm just curious. You talked about the apology and all that stuff. And then my side comes from the PR side of things and looking at how do you balance the legality of it? And then also just being a human being and connecting with customer service and good leadership and all that stuff. How do you balance that? It's a challenge. I guess selfishly, I could say that I sort of picked my corner. (laughs) And that other corner is for them to worry about. I counsel on the worst possible day. I'm not in charge of their service model, right? Now, I say that jokingly because, of course, we try to be real-world advisors. And I also jokingly always tell my clients, look, I want you to have as many projects as possible because if you don't make money, you can't buy your insurance, right? So that's a problem for me. But what you're asking is a great question. And it does, it's not easy, right? And in... In any large design firm where there is a marketing machine, a business development machine, and a risk management machine, right? These, a sizable firm is going to have a strong risk management office, maybe multiple lawyers or seasoned risk managers, and they're going to have a strong marketing business development team. And I don't think anyone would argue with me that there's always going to be a little of this. And so at the end of the day, what I try to do is, I, first of all, I never, never try to push a client to making a business decision because it's not my business and it's their livelihood and their bottom line that's in at stake, not mine. So I see my role as pointing out the potential landmines, right? Trying to counsel them on what would happen in a worst case scenario. Don't feel sorry for me. That's where I live, I guess, the scenario. And then trying to help them as best I can evaluate what what I call, and a lot of firms call, sort of a a go, no-go process. And that's what they go through. And I think it's client selection, right? It's My law firms go through that same thing. I think any any type of professional service firm, they're not going to agree to this by contract. That's a point against them. Our fees really good. That's a point for them, right? We know these guys. We've done 20 projects with them. We've never had a problem. That's five points for them, right? And it comes to some type of analysis that, again, way outside of my control. So I guess I leave the balancing to them, but I do try to be realistic about it. And I think I haven't heard myself be criticized of this, but I think one of the potential criticisms of someone in my role 
is, and I try to bring, I try to bring this out when I'm in with firms talking to them because I don't want them to think that. Because I know, I'll just say, the corollary is I went to law school, right? And I would sit in law school class and I would listen to a professor talk about a hypothetical and how it was going to work out. And nine times out of 10, maybe my professors didn't love me so much, I would think to myself, that is not how it would really work out in the real world, right? This is, this is a classroom. This is elementary. This is, this is not the real world. And so what I try to do is bring real world examples into that sort of classroom setting so it doesn't feel like a classroom and try to help them gauge, look, yes, bottom line, this could happen, but here are the reasons I think it's a relatively manageable risk. And I guess if I'm at all trying to walk that line we're talking about, that's how I do it. Mm. I try not to, as my dad says, I try not to make mountains out of molehills. But you know, I'm in the South right there, right? And that's, that is what I try to do. Yeah, yeah. And I guess you're saying that for any decision maker, any of these companies, they want to know all the different possibilities and at least be able to stare at them. None of us can predict the future, but at least have all those things out there so you can sort of weigh them so you, you don't get blindsided by something you didn't see on the table. That's exactly right. And, and to your point, that's how a lot of our conversations end. I will say, look, your business decision, again, it's your business, but at least you go into this project eyes wide open. Like the worst criticism of me ever, and the way I would feel horrific about this is if a client ever came back and said, you didn't tell us that this could happen. Right. And like you said, I don't have the crystal ball either. If I did, I'd be doing really well. But at least I try to, in some type of comprehensive way, paint a picture of here's what could happen. And unfortunately, a lot of times it's or most of the time it's here's what could go wrong. Yeah. Yeah. So, Dale, you live in the risk world. How much of this permeates into your personal life? You know, like <laughs> if I eat that taco, there's a 40 percent chance something's going to go right. Does it seep into your personal life or is it kind of separate? I wish I could say it's separate, but it's <laughs> two things you just mentioned triggered in my head. One is when I was practicing law, when I was litigating, we bill by the hour, right? Most lawyers now, I mean, there are fixed fees, but most lawyers bill by the hour and they bill in 0.1 of an hour increments, which is six minutes. So I'm not kidding you. And this is actually at one point where I thought to myself, I got to get out of here. I got to do, do something else. We would like finish dinner as a family. I can't believe I'm saying this. How many people will see this? But we would like finish dinner as a family. And I would say that was a 0.6 or that was a 0.7. I was like, something's wrong. I got like my mind is, I know that's not exactly what you're asking, but that did creep into my life. Now, it certainly does with driving with I have a 10-year-old son, 16 doesn't seem that far away to me for him. I'm constantly talking to him, hearing my own father in the back of my head, talking to him about defensive driving and all these sorts of things. You're driving a weapon, son. You're driving a weapon. Why do people not realize this? Yes, it creeps into everything I do. It creeps into, I coach youth sports. It creeps into, do we need waivers to use this friend's basketball court? I can't help it. It's the way I'm wired. And what's funny is it's not unique to me. I have lots of attorney friends. I coach a baseball team with an attorney and we, we have these same sorts. I mean, you just can't unring that bell. It's one of the reasons that I personally am not a big fan or maybe not the reason, but it supports the way I feel. 
I, I'm not a big fan of that line, you know, hey, it's just business. I actually, I don't react well when someone says it. Usually when somebody says that, things aren't going well in the conversation either, right? It's right. So you're being, someone's dumping you or something's not going well. It's not you, it's me kind of thing. It's just business. I take my business extremely personal. And you know what? I want that from my doctor and my lawyer and my broker and my, the people that represent the real risks to me in life, staying healthy. God forbid if somebody wants to come after my family or our assets because they think I hit them in a car accident or whatever, right? The, the people that that really important counsel that you get, I am always of the mindset with my financial advisors, with everybody. I go out and I try to pick who I think is really good, smart, and going to take care of me. And then I do what that person tells me to do. That's the way I operate. And I, I look, I guess, circling back, I try to look for people who I feel like are taking it personally, that it's not just a, hey, well, you know, it's just business kind of thing. So I don't know, that's a little off the page. That, that's what made me think of. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Now, what I always think about is the insurance world is always evaluating risk. How does the insurance start to evaluate something that doesn't have a lot of, I guess, track record in terms of how it happens? Let's say this new cybersecurity risk and stuff. How do they approach new risk? And how does that sort of work through in terms of understanding and be able to quantify it? Well, I think if the cyber underwriters, you just hit a very hot point there, right? A very hot button issue because the cyber liability insurance market is on fire. I mean, it is, it is burning. The reason it's burning, because underwriters, carriers, right? Insurance companies, they jumped in and they wrote these policies for a risk they didn't really understand and for an amount of money that was nothing, relatively nothing. So all these companies of all kinds of variety started buying them because it was cheap. And obviously the price reflects the risk, not having a really good understanding of the risk. And I'm not, look, I'm, this is also not meant to be like, it's easy for me to play Monday morning quarterback. It's the most constantly evolving risk that is out there in the insurance world, at least the one, anyone I'm aware of. So I, I certainly not pointing fingers, but when you don't understand the risk and you can't catch up with it and you aren't charging adequate premium, then your book starts to get your book of business, your starts to catch on fire, right? And, and all you have to do is turn on the TV or read the newspaper to the extent people read newspapers anymore to, to see some of the most massive breach events that are going on. But Tats, I'll tell you the what you don't read about, what's not on the news are the 200 smaller firms that we ensure that we have breaches for in a month, right? That doesn't make the news. Number one, they don't want to be on the news, right? That's not something that you lure in new clients with. But so to your question about how do you do it when you don't have the data or the loss experience, you throw something up and see if it sticks against the wall is what I've seen. I mean, I'm not an underwriter, but that, and then you're reactionary, unfortunately. You're reactive. Maybe that's the better word. You underwrite reactively based upon what happened to you last year. And that's what's happening. And so a firm who might've paid $10,000 for their cyber liability insurance last year is paying 50 to 75. And I mean, that's just broad brush. But, and my client base, which is again, professional services firms, 
they're right there in the heat of it because they are holding a lot of client information, personal health information, personally identifiable information. Unfortunately, the bad actors, I think, oftentimes see professional services firms as a conduit through which they can access a bigger corporation. You're a law firm and you're representing ABC, who's a multi-billion dollar international corporation who has the most sophisticated systems and guards, whatever. Maybe I can get into this law firm and I'll use them as a jumping off point. And that's, that's it. So it's the old employment practices, right? That's the insurance that covers discrimination type lawsuits. I cannot tell you, now this is going to tell you, I just turned 40. I'm dealing with the emotional ramifications of that. But so I was not in this business when what they call employment practices, liability insurance was created. But people who have more gray hair than I do are in the business are now, it's a constant discussion about, well, cyber is the new employment practices liability. Years ago when that came out, nobody really knew. All the things that we see now from Me Too movement and on and on and on, that stuff didn't really exist back then. They sold it for relatively cheap prices. And it's, it's, I don't think it's anywhere as bad as where we are with cyber, but there's some similarities. So that's a long-winded way of saying, I think insurance companies, they jump in and sometimes they don't learn until they've paid the price first. Yeah. So on the construction side, there's lots of supply chain issues and kind of changes that are occurring. Is there any trends or things that you're closely watching on the construction or the material side? Well, for a while there, and things are improving in this regard, but for a while there, materials like lumber were just through the roof. And what was very interesting was, so there's two, and again, this is sort of simplifying it, but there's kind of two basic approaches to a construction agreement. And it's sort of guaranteed price, right? This is what the fixed fee, this is what it'll cost. And then there's sort of a guaranteed maximum price plus a fee, right? And I probably should just say that there's two basic ways a construction contract is written. One puts the risk of the cost of materials escalating on the contractor, and one puts it on the owner. Now, the owner, and I'm trying to be, I'm trying to be as Switzerland as I can be, the owner is clearly in a better position to manage that risk. Why? Because they can agree to a substitution for a lower cost material, in theory, in theory. I mean, there are exceptions, of course, to this. But if you are a contractor who has a hard bid and a guaranteed out-the-door number, and you have taken that risk of lumber going up 300% or steel or all these other things that we've seen, you are in a tough spot when the time comes and materials have escalated, like that cost has escalated. So that's the kind of thing we've seen, and it has harsh results. That's all there is to it. Harsh results. And the most successful results we've seen as when, as a lot of times when this happens, when the parties come together and just, yes, I know what the contract says, but let's reach a reasonable and somewhat amicable resolution to resolve this, to build my project and go forward. So that's, yeah, that has been an issue. It's certainly something that we have seen. But a lot of times... Again, since I represent more on the design side, in that kind of thing I'm talking about, a lot of times the owner who views the architect as his or her you know, consultant is coming to the architect and saying, well, what do we do? 
And that's when I have to say, look, you're an architect. You're not a lawyer. This is not your responsibility to interpret the contract and decide who owes what. So it's something that our clients, even who aren't on the ownership or building side, are getting caught in the middle. Yeah, no, definitely a complex issue. Yeah. So when you're not knee deep in uh, risk management and stuff, you, you mentioned a few things already, but what do you do? I think you said you coached a few teams and stuff like that, but do you have some time to do other things? Oh, sure, sure, sure. So I have four kids with 10-year-old being the oldest. So that's, that is most of my non-professional life, a beautiful wife and a, and a great family. And so we travel as a family. I'm a big, traveling's always been one of my favorite things to do. So even though the youngest is just now three, we put them on planes, even with what's going on in the world now. We try to take them, let them see the world. I think you learn a lot by just seeing other places and seeing other types of people and other types of cities, et cetera. We do that big into youth sports, the boys and the girls. Again, I learned a lot of things from my time in athletics. The good, bad, and ugly, not all positive, but you learn about defeat. You learn about losing. You learn about dealing with difficult people. You learn about how it feels to win, how it feels to compete, how it feels to blow a lead and come back from one. And maybe I'm crazy, but I think I think all of those lessons can be applied to a much broader scale of life, right? You're going to fail. Clients are going to fire you. You're going to mess up. You're going to strike out. You're going to look like a fool at times. You're going to hit a grand slam every now and then too, right? And it's going to feel really, really good. So we do a lot of sports in my family, sports and travel, fishing. Sometimes we, we do a lot of fishing. Trying to think what else. We hang out with friends, of course, and family, very important. My wife comes from a very big family. I was an only child, and now we have four. So you can sort of see who won that battle internally, which is usually the way it goes. So yeah, just a, a family man, I guess, is what I would say. Wonderful. I play golf very poorly, but I do play golf. <laughs> Don't we all play poorly <laughs> at golf? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I play exclusively. I play with bad players because the good ones don't want me or I can't handle being with them, watching what they can do. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. Is there anything that I should have asked you, but I missed? No, I mean, I can't think. Like I said, I wasn't sure what you were going to ask me. So no, I just appreciate the conversation and I enjoy the time. I hope somebody takes some little thing away from it that would make my day. I do love, I will say, just my favorite part about my job and really what I like to do just on a daily basis is talk to people and communicate. And that's another thing. I know this isn't supposed to be like a how to be a good father. And believe me, I've got lots of problems, but I'm not perfect. But I think communication, and that's another thing about sports and travel where you're forced into sort of thrown into communicating with lots of different types of people. I don't necessarily think we communicate. A lot of people don't communicate very well. And, and I'm as guilty as anybody as being on my phone all the time or email. The old, I had a client say the other day, it's like, people just don't go out on the porch. Now, again, this sounds like a very Southern, people don't go out on the porch and have a face-to-face conversation anymore. Even though this is obviously using technology, this feels like a face-to-face. And I think the more that we continue to do this kind of thing and not rely on text and email, while they're very useful tools and we'll always be using them until we can, I guess, port from one to the other, show up in your office through some type of magic machine. I think the face-to-face and being able to, to communicate and talk with people, come to reach a mutual understanding, that's a big hurdle in whatever you're doing. So I don't know where that came out of, but, but that's another thought. 
There you go. Thank you so much, Dale. Thanks for sharing your thoughts. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Specified Growth Podcast today. I also want to thank the listeners who are working hard each day to change the world to make it a better place. Make sure you check out youtube.com forward slash Tats Talks for video of today's podcast. Hit the subscribe button for upcoming episodes, entrepreneurial tips, and more. See you over there. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.